Hey everyone, welcome to the show. We'll be getting going in just a couple moments. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We got a good one for you today, of course. Welcome to Right On Radio. The tagline behind the show is live right in. Hey, we're not going to tell you how to live, but we are going to expose the real world. And we're open to many different views. And one of the views we have today is, of course, from the military analyst. His name is Chris Wilson, although that's not his real name, but we call him the military analyst because we must keep his identity private as he would be killed for some of the things that he is bringing out. Uh, and really what is shocking is you're going to find that history has been rewritten by many, many people. Oh, Jesse, you got a big echo. There you go. Uh, listen, uh, history has been rewritten. And uh, he is showing, and he brings evidence uh, to just about everything he does. Uh, just a couple announcements right off the very top here. Uh, I want to apologize. We did have some trouble with some files that were put up last week. The pictures were cut off. There was a formatting issue on uh, on Right On You. For those of you who subscribe to uh, the Intel channel for the military analyst, uh, those have been fixed. It took me a little while to figure out the formatting issue uh, but the files that were uh, bonus files were taken out and they've been replaced. Uh, please let me know through that platform if there are any other files that ha are corrupted because I it's hard for me to go through every single page. Uh, usually I just trust that a PDF prints out as a PDF. Uh, some of them I've had to reformat and put up in Word, and those are corrected files. So uh, we're going to keep them coming. The files for today's show are up there, and if you subscribe, you've already got the email a couple hours ago, so they are ready for you to go. Uh, listen, we appreciate all the, the likes and everything else uh, that you do, and uh, and by the way, it's really, really great when you send, uh, send the coffees and stuff like that. Those pod points actually help the algorithms that we... Uh, we get so I've actually gone down a position on Podbean because we didn't get enough last month. <laughs> and, and look, it's not my standards. I'm just trying to uh, to get the word out on all this other stuff. So, uh, so thanks for playing along with that. I really appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, Jesse has joined us, so I'm going to bring her on really quick just before we uh, we bring uh, Chris on. Jesse, do you want to say hello? Sorry, had to get it. Yes, hello everybody. So I, I know Jesse's going to be in and out. She ha she's uh, got a couple appointments going on at the same time, but she just wanted to jump in. Uh, and everyone's saying, "Hey, back to you, Jesse." So listen, without further ado, let's bring on the military analyst because this is going to be a captivating session. Chris, good day to you, and welcome back to Right on Radio. Thank you, Jeff. As Always, it's a pleasure, and uh, I have a very interesting uh, essay, which is all factual, that I think your audience will truly appreciate. As history has been completely rewritten, uh, this concerns, we're traveling first to North Africa, then across to Brazil, uh, following the coastline, all the way up through Central America, through the Caribbean, and then up the Mississippi River, to the, the tip of Illinois, and this goes dates back to 39 A.D. This is concerns King Juba's the Second's 
Lost Treasure, and Cleopatra Selene's Surviving Empire. In 39 AD, they fled North Africa to the Gulf of Mexico, escaping Emperor Caligula's, the Roman Emperor, uh, Caligula's invading legions, and they sailed north on the Mississippi River uh, to the Ohio River and merged into southern, where it merged into southern Illinois. And this is where the Mauritanian colony made it in 40 AD. So essentially 2,000 years ago. So what had happened was that, uh, in 39 AD, after her husband and son, uh, Ptolemy were slain by Emperor Caligula. <clears throat> now the people need to understand that Cleopatra had four children. And the latter two were fraternal twins. And I'll get that in a moment, but Cleopatra was, was exceptionally bright. She was one of the most uh, astounding, uh, and only one of three female uh, pharaohs in Egypt. And, uh, basically that, uh, what is happening between the Roman Empire, which is an invading empire, they realized that uh, Cleopatra, the her, she was actually Cleopatra the seventh, the mother, and she was from the Ptolemy bloodline, which is where Macedonia is today. And basically, they uh, were able to, after her uh, son was killed by uh, um, one was killed by. Uh, Augustus Caesar, and she had uh, two twins by the general, Roman general Mark Anthony. And that was Cleopatra Selene was the daughter. Selene in Greek means moon, just as Luna in Latin means moon. Whereas the son was, his name was Alexander Helios. Helios in Greek means sun, whereas in Latin is S-O-L, soul. So, um, they basically uh, moved over to, uh, first, the public needs to understand that Cleopatra Selene went to safeguard herself because of the Romans. She went to the Mauritanian Empire, and the public will be able to see photos when you upload that. And uh, that covered what is today... Uh, Morocco, Tunisia, and the northern part of Algeria. It was a fairly large empire, and it was run by King Juba, and he was a benevolent ruler. However, Carthage was also part of that empire, and the Romans had invaded it multiple times over the years. So, what happened was Cleopatra's, the mother, sent her daughter Cleopatra Selene over to the Mauritanian Empire to protect herself. She in turn, the daughter married, uh, King Juba's, the first son, who was named King Juba the second. And it just got worse from there. So they, Caligula would invaded Carthage. And what he did, he killed King Juba, the father, and then on the second raid, he came and killed her husband and, uh, Queen 
Salim realize it was never ending. So she being the, the queen of their empire with their father-in-law and husband removed, she then in 39 AD organized all of her men, the, the ships that were still uh, saleable, they took all their gear, clothing, food, animals, and they literally packed up approximately 60 ships and they sailed in the middle of the night over to the Hook or what is known as a Horn of Africa, where Guyana is today. They did that for two reasons. One, to escape uh, Caligula's Roman army, and secondly, to go to a better world of uh, nonviolence of war. They spent time, they knew at that time many things we don't understand and which has not been passed down. They knew the tides, they knew the currents, and they also knew that the hurricane season was August through November, November being the worst. This was in springtime, so they knew they only had approximately six months into recondition their ships, build new ships that were ocean-traveling vessels, and they knew the names of the other continents. I'll go into that in a moment. But they basically risked their lives and went across the ocean to the closest point, which was North Africa, Brazil, followed the coastline all the way up, replenishing food and fresh water all the way until they got and found the largest river, which was the Mississippi River. At that time, the Mississippi River did not have levees, dikes, and uh, canals and dams. It was free-flowing, and it was smooth. So they sailed all the way up so they would never be found again, and they landed in an area that is in the southern tip of Illinois, and they built a city inside of a 535-foot cave or cavern. And the technology that uh, Burroughs found, which I'll go into, is absolutely astonishing. So let me read on. Uh, to escape, uh, the, they left North Africa to escape the ensuing Roman tyranny. They sailed transatlantic using the Phoenicians and Carthaginians' sacred maps. Remember, Jeff, that knowledge is never discovered. It is always transferred from one secret society or one reigning league over to the next, its successor. So they had maps and navigational secrets to the Caribbean Sea. Once reaching land, they followed the Caribbean Sea contour of the South American and Central American coastlines into the Gulf of Mexico and discovered the Mississippi River Delta. They continued the trek northward to the Ohio River tributary and established a colony at Burroughs Cave in Illinois by 41 AD. But I think it is actually closer to 40. Uh, they brought on board their fleet Cleopatra's treasure and King Juba's Encyclopedia Library of Ancient Knowledge. So my point is, Jeff, that Cleopatra, to protect her children as surviving children, as well as the knowledge base, that knowledge, which was at Alexandria before the Romans burned it in roughly 440 A.D., uh, she was prior to that, obviously, and she was able to take the knowledge from the library and her treasure and have it brought over to the Mauritania Empire 
with her daughter, uh, Celine, and uh, to uh, King Juba the first. You've got my so, interest with this, Chris. Like just the fact that Cleopatra, you know, we think of this Egyptian, you know, but she's coming up the Mississippi River. Fascinating. Well, everything I had said before that that uh, we had learned at best one point zero one percent of life of the truth of life. Now it's I've changed it. And it's now 100 percent. The only thing we have truly learned that was positive is from our parents, their parents and grandparents and generations untold. The positive moral values uh, uh, and ethics of how to conduct oneself, the mores. And that is the truly only aspect that is is actually factual because it's been passed down from generations. Okay, so uh, going forward, uh, they took the Encyclopedia Library of Ancient Knowledge, and this came, as I mentioned, from the uh, Library of Alexandria in Egypt before it was burned to the ground by Julius Caesar's Roman legions later. Uh, no succeeding Roman emperor ever located this vast treasure because it was secretly moved to North America, a haven from the Roman atrocities occurring throughout the old world Mediterranean cultures. How long this colony survived is unknown. No trace of their departure was evidence. Judging by the royal skeletons that were found in one of the 12 cave vaults, which I'll speak to in a minute, uh, and that was uh, thus being a husband, a wife, and a child that were killed by arrows and clubs, it appears the colony was killed off by local Indian tribes or just abandoned for agriculture lands eastward or westward. Five eight-foot-tall carved black stone statues were found inside. This culture had possessed advanced mathematics and architectural skills as the chamber doors were precision cut, balanced, and sealed beside the Egyptian-type idols. These were pivoting doors that you could just touch, and they were probably two tons of solid stone and they would literally uh, pivot on hinges. They mastered technology we never have seen. So then uh, the days was so much greater than what we have today. You know, we have all this computer modeling and everything else, but the engineering back then was absolutely mind blowing. And there's so many evidences of that around the world, even today. Correct. So I have photos of uh, some items that were found. One is King Juba II, a statue of his. Then also of a Carthaginian sailor. And uh, Juba was the monarch of North African kingdom known as Mauritania, comprised, as mentioned, most of Mor- uh, Morocco, Algeria, and uh, Tunisia. After Emperor Caligula murdered his son in 39 AD, the Romans invaded Mauritania to seize his gold for- golden fortune. But they never found it. Nearly 2,000 years later, a buried treasure surrounded by Roman-era artifacts came to light in the America Midwest. This apparently is, or a portion of, the ancient treasure trove of this lost uh, Excalibur. Uh, King Juba concealed nearly 15 centuries uh, before Columbus ever landed on the American continent. In the extreme northwest corner of Richland County in southern Illinois, bends an elbow of the river Embarrass, and that's E-M-B-A-R-R-A-S, branching from its bigger sister, the Wabash River, and that's W-A-B-A-S-H. An infrequent visit site, certainly unknown outside to the immediate vicinity, was hardly more than a hole in the ground, but the opening was about 10 feet wide 
and eight feet from ceiling to roof. It was large enough for infrequent local visitors to stoop through or take a kind of natural corridor running 15 feet into the side of a hill, perhaps three quarters of a mile from the south bank of the Embassy River. On April 2nd, 1982, a 47-year-old cave explorer entered its first dark recesses outfitted with just a flashlight, pick hammer, and backpack. Nineteen years later, Russell Burroughs publicly presented a detailed description of the events before an international archaeology conference in the Vienna Art Center in Austria. The cave itself is 535 feet deep to its terminal breakdown. The down angle uh, is six degrees. The artifacts which he recovered were located in the silt for the most part. However, uh, he recovered uh, were many that were located uh, within niches as well as uh, from shelves along the walls. Also to be seen are lamps cut out of knobs of rock on the walls. There are several of these lamps since they seem to be positioned every 15 or 20 feet. The air above these lamps is blackened by smoke from the lamps, which was most likely burned by animal fat or oil of some kind. In the largest area of the cave are five statues made of the same black rock material, as are the artifacts displayed. These statues are arranged in a semicircle, and they are in appearance on the order of Egyptian figures. The left foot forward and the left arm forward. Held in the left hand is a staff. Since these figures are some eight feet or more tall, they are made of the black rock material. Their weight must be four to six tons. There are 13 doorways cut into the walls of the cave. These doorways are closed by cut and well-fitted blocks of stone, the seams of which are sealed with a pitch or beeswax. Russell moved one of the blocks and was amazed to discover that the sealed doorways were the entrance into a burial crypt, which was about 12 feet square with a stone beer in the center. And that's B-I-E-R. In this crypt, he found a skeleton of a male. This was determined by the pelvic bone. On his skeleton was copper, gold, and jewels, and lying on the beer with him, okay, a beer is basically a, um, a stone platform of like a, like a burial uh, table. Um, with him was his sword, axe, and shield. There was and still are large jars, one of which had fallen and broken, and that has to do with earthquakes over the years. Inside the broken jar was seen 20 or so rolled up scrolls. Uh, scrolls of writing. So those would be papyrus. Okay. Uh, the audience, we have to see the pictures of, uh, and the writings on the, on the scriptures of, it's basically Egyptian as well as Mauritanian, which is a, probably a cross. The Burroughs Cave site in southern Illinois reveals tens of thousands of refugees sailed after the murder of their king and the invasion of their homelands by the Roman legions and they sought a new homeland. The people left 15 centuries earlier. They built massive ocean durable ships and sailed westward in the hopes of finding a safe haven away from the tyranny and enslavement of the old world in the Mediterranean. It started with Cleopatra VII, whose only daughter Cleopatra Selene married King Juba II, ruler of the semi-independent realm of Mauritania, present-day Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia, which she ruled with her husband. Following the execution of the only son, Ptolemy by Roman Emperor Caligula, the Mauritanians rebelled against their Roman overlords and made their voyage around the coast into today's Ghana region. And they also have a map to show the, so they can trace their, their route. There they constructed a fleet of ship for a transatlantic voyage 
to land where they hoped to rebuild their kingdom safe from Roman rule. They took with them a great prize unsuccessfully sought by two Roman emperors, which I mentioned, Cleopatra's golden treasure and King Juba's encyclopedic library of ancient wisdom uh, and the rolled uh, papyrus scrolls. Preferably a perilous transatlantic journey as they opposed certain slaughter and slavery in their homeland. They entrusted their lives to the sea. Faced with almost certain death at home or escaping over the uncertain open sea, some of its survivors became first century boat people, quotes, while the majority of professional archaeologists dismiss such transoceanic voyages as imaginative fantasy. They are contradicted by the vast collection of inscribed and illustrated stone tablets uncovered from the Burroughs Cave. The cave containing this treasure trove of artifacts associated with King Juba, the Mauritanian king, is still a closely guarded secret. Even now, it discovers, um, are in the process of disclosing its whereabout and paradigm, shattering contents to the outside world. When the disclosure is finally made, its ramifications could push the beginnings of American history back another 15 centuries. Then I show the map of the Burroughs Cave so they can see the actual length from an overview uh, to see how deep this cave went from the opening uh, over 535 feet and they built a literally a city inside of it. Regardless of their spiritual beliefs, all of the refugees were under a sentence of death. If the Romans caught them, every man would be crucified, their women and children sold into lifelong slavery. The circumstances of defeat had not only obliterated their kingdom, it had reduced them to first century boat people, as mentioned, forced to risk their lives on Didrisi, rather than lose, than certainly losing by remaining behind on the land. All too conscious of the fate looming in the north, the Mauritanians and their West African co-workers labored ferociously to finish their new ships. And there are pictures of the golden artifacts uh, that you'll be able to see on your site. There was another urgent consideration, the weather. Spring was waning, and if the fleet was not ready by midsummer, it would not be able to sail until the following year, and that would be too late to escape the doom intended for them. November was the storm season, and the refugees must arrive at their distant destination before then. Otherwise, this prospect of surviving the prolonged voyage in makeshift vessels was bleak. Urgency gave impetus to their efforts, and the hastily completed ships were boarded a few weeks after the summer solstice. The priests and the holy men representing half a dozen or more different faiths pleaded with their own versions of God for his blessing on this desperate adventure. The great vessels, heavily laden with passengers and supplies, lurched out over the vast rolling carpet of the heavily unknown Roman cynicism disparaged as the pasture of fools. Crowns of West Africa's with their uncertain monarch gathered on the shores to watch the strange craft carrying their strange passengers and crews from Mauritania further away toward the west with every foaming plunge. But they had not thrown themselves aimlessly into the Atlantic Ocean just to escape their pursuers. They knew exactly where they were going, or at least their navigators did. The seafaring heritage of Mauritania was already centuries old when King Juba sent out expeditions to the Canary Islands even as far as Madeira, and that's M-E-D-E-I-R-A, in search of Murek Malas for the lucrative purple dye industry. Henceforward, the classical world referred to these distant shores 
as a, I'm going to have to spell this because it's a bizarre one. It's P-U-R-P-U-R-A-R-I-A-E, and that would be Perpea, or uh, Prince's Purple Isles. Juba's great library contained his Punic legacy of sailing instructions to the whereabouts of distant, prosperous locations unknown to the outside world, but jealousy regarded by the Carthaginian merchants as treasured commercial secrets. And Jeff, what is known is that there would be, at that time, there were either invaders or traitors. And they were traitors in the uh, Mauritanian Empire, whereas the Romans were strictly invaders. So uh, the sailing secrets were not transferred or shared with any other existing races at that time. They kept it to a secret to themselves, and that was their greatest secret and for survival and for trading. So that's one thing the public should know. Um, then they have a picture of the golden sarcophagus as well as artifacts that they uh, that Burroughs found inside this gigantic cave system. Charts drawn from an abundance of such privileged information enabled the captains of the refugee fleet to find their way to what the Roman cartographers vaguely knew as, I'm going to spell it and then pronounce it. It's E-P-E-I-R-O-S, Epiros, and the other one is Occidentalis. O-C-C-I-D-E-N-T-A-L-I-S. Conjectured continents uh, that most likely lay in the far west. Well, they weren't conjectured. They already knew, but this author didn't. And half of this is his writing, half of it is mine. Beyond the horizon, only suicidal foods dared to seek. Actually, the existence of it, if not sailing instructions of both continents, had been known for more than 200 years before, at least. A globe of the world created by the Greek geographer Crates, and that's C-R-A-T-E-S of Malos, and that's M-A-L-L-O-S, and preserved for the Romans in the writing of Strabo, S-T-R-A-B-O, identified North America as Perokia, P-E-R-O-I-K-O-I, Peroki, and South America was Antipodia, A-N-T-I-P-O-D-E-A. They already knew of the continents, as I've mentioned. Going forward, uh, while a July-August passage across the tranquil central Atlantic may have been tedious, it was, outside of an isolated storm or two, mercifully uneventful. The point from which the expedition left Africa would have thrust it directly into the Canary Island current, which flows westward straight across the Atlantic to the opposite side of the ocean. As their ships arrived uh, sailing into the Gulf of Mexico following the southern coastline of uh, South America, Brazil. However, they arrived during the hurricane season. Some must have been sunk with loss of life. Others were separated and scattered to the coasts of Florida, Mexico, and Panama. Then it shows a picture of when uh, Burroughs, uh, Russell Burroughs, uh, showed and went public uh, of his findings uh, with a photograph and article. And Chris, the main body of the, oh, yes. yeah, let me just jump in right here. As Jesse had something to offer, and then I want to make a quick announcement about the uh, about the uh, pictures. Then we'll get right back to you, Chris. Yeah, Chris, I'm loving this show today. Um, it, it's absolutely right on, and I just wanted to share from my own personal experience that I have been in those caves, and the ritual area is still set up and presently used, um, that whole Chicago area, you know, is, we'll just say heavy with elite. 
Uh, but the interesting thing is that a lot of those uh, books and materials and treasures, um, they moved in, I, you know, I don't know if it was before 1980s, um, but in the 1980s, I was introduced to some of those high-level books that were brought over, um, and they hold those now in Spring Green, Wisconsin, under the Frank Lloyd Wright uh, House of the Rock property. So um, it was interesting that you're bringing that up. It was like, oh, I know about that. <laughs> so I just wanted to confirm that, that this is information that is right on for people who are listening. Okay. Not only that, but it's far out solid and right on, right on, right on. Thank you for that, Jesse. And yeah, and Jesse, one other thing that you uh, mentioned is that those uh, those canals and everything that Chris was talking about, you can actually sail ships through them, or you could uh, back in the day. So that's important. Yeah. Yeah, they actually have. Uh, that was one of the uh, the military just went through, and uh, when we saw the flooding, like the water coming up through the manholes in that Chicago area, that was because they were flooding those uh, submarine tunnels. That's what they were turned into. Um, but, yeah, they, they're tall enough for big, massive ships with sails to go through there. So, Absolutely incredible. And just one last thing. Uh, so if you so some people came into the studio a little bit late, uh, this these podcasts are published right after we finish. Uh, literally within about five minutes is published. You can start from the very beginning if you missed the beginning. Uh, also, if you're looking for the pictures, uh, we the files are really big. We put them all up on right on you. That's right on with the letter U dot com. And we do this to actually support the military analyst. And by the way, thank you for your support. Uh, a lot of you have joined and it's really, it's actually melted my heart knowing that how much we can uh, help Chris, particularly uh, this month coming up. Uh, so that's really great. Uh, it is a, it is a paid thing um, to get all the access to the files and the, and the prints. But of course we give out all the information for free, but if you want to follow along, I usually post the document before we do the shows and I'll even send out an email saying, hey, look at these new files and then you can uh, follow along. Uh, so if you are interested in following along and, and supporting Chris and, and help with covering some of the expense of doing this, uh, then please do go to write on with the letter U dot com and look for the military analyst. Chris, we're so sorry to interrupt, but we just thought that was worth it to jump in. Absolutely. That's fine. You can interject anytime. The main body of immigrant vessels entered the mouth of the Mississippi River, sailing northward into the North American continent. Such a, such a passage would not be possible today with constructions of wing dams in the late 19th century, but especially after the installation of locks and levees in the 1930s, the, quote, father of waters, uh, southward movements, uh, the current increased to its present seven mile per hour. That didn't exist then. They undoubtedly pulled into shore from time to time for repairs and other necessities. At such landing intervals, foraging parties hunted game and brought back edible fruits. It was also then that the vital presence of so many armed troops who accompanied the expedition was apparent. Various indigenous groups encountered along the way made most furtive appearances, keeping their distance from the awesome strangers. Often there were ambushes and surprise assaults. Not all Indian encounters resulted in violence. However, some tribes showed more of an inclination to barter than to fight, and 
friendly relations with several river peoples were established. Among these, the West Africans attracted special notice for their skin color. In the same way, unusual or unfamiliar personal traits were regarded as the sure signs of Wanaka or spiritual power. That's W-A-N-A-K-A. Many blacks jumped ship, preferring to settle where they were, where they wanted, rather than entrusting themselves to the less certainty destined of the white foreigners they served. Evidence of their decision to abandon the other refugees survives among a numerous, sorry, numerically uh, insignificant population of native blacks known today as the tribe of Washita, and that's W-A-S-H-I-T-A-W. They were described as indigenous people by the renowned explorers Lewis and Clark in 1803. While some of their West African deckhands were jumping ship, the Mauritanians continued to push toward the north in a prolonged expedition that took almost as long as their transatlantic crossing. When they at last reached the Mississippi River's confluence with the Ohio River, autumn was spreading its swirling colors over the earth. The newcomers were not the first to visit this spectacularly raw wilderness. They had preceded centuries before by Phoenician path traders who came in search of the rare goods that once made their Carthaginian capital the richest city in the world. Their detailed explore, exploratory knowledge of the, quote, opposite continent, cited as long ago as the 4th century B.C. by the Greek philosopher Plato, in his dialogue, the Critias, which is K-R-I-T-I-A-S, was classified information then. Steering eastward into the Ohio River, the refugee fleet cruised around the bottom of what would be millennia later become the state of Illinois. And then they can see the photos. Uh, one shows uh, Russell Burroughs. Uh, he's wearing his military uh, jacket, okay, uh, and uh, he's exploring the mysterious cave where he found the ancient treasures. But you can see him, uh, that he was former military. He's got the screaming eagle on his arm. Uh, basically, the next picture shows uh, the, of the uh, Cleopatra's twin babies, and now that we know that they have a face, meaning uh, before we only knew she had some, because they weren't described more than uh, in what was known as uh, hieroglyphics or pictographs. An Italian uh, Egyptologist has rediscovered a sculpture of Alexander Helios, which is a son, and Cleopatra Selene, the moon, the offspring of Mark Antony and Cleopatra the seventh. And that photo is there as well. What the archaeologists didn't mention is the snake wrapped around the twins. Egypt was a deity culture. Snakes were highly revered. Since the statue of Pakhom, which is P-A-K-H-O-M, was dated to 50 to 30 B.C., she concluded that the twin sculpture was produced by an Egyptian artist at the end of the Potomac period after Roman, uh, which was uh, Trimavir, T-R-I-U-M-V-I-R, Mark Anthony, recognized his twins finally in 37 B.C. The babies weren't the first for Cleopatra. The queen of Egypt had already given birth in 47 B.C. when she bore Julius Caesar's a child, uh, Caesarian. And then in 36 B.C., um, she had, uh, I believe it's uh, Ptolemic in, uh, uh, over in the Mauritanian kingdom. King Juba II uh, was 52 B.C. to 23 A.D. He was a Mauritanian monarch. Uh, and amassed great wealth, uh, coveted by the bankrupt Caesar. 
Caligula's imperial forces, his legions, on entering the mausoleum contained the king's treasures. They found it empty. Perhaps these riches had been spirited across the ocean to North America. At that time, that is 81st century, the Mauritanians were skilled mariners. While our continent was one vast battlefield of intertribal warfare, save only for the part of what is known as Southern Illinois, where Burroughs Cave was said to be found. Um, a few senior residents recalled how they and their forebears occasionally unearthed similar illustrated stones while plowing their wheat fields. Sometimes the peculiar objects were kept as curiosities or traded with neighbors, but more often discarded. Their multi-generational inhabitants remembered how their grandparents believed that the peculiar artifacts had been used by practitioners of black magic cults said to have been conducted secret rituals in Richmond County caves during the 1880s and 1890s. At least a few Burroughs cave-like stones have surfaced beyond the Embarrass River, uh, most notably the so-called Birdman Tablet found east of the city of St. Louis, just across the Mississippi River in Collinsville, Illinois, at Cahokia, which is C-A-H-O-K-I-A, where a large ceremonial center that flourished during the 10th and 11th centuries A.D., Radiocarbon dating of charcoal found at the base of the lobe or stump associated with a tablet found inside Monk's Mound, which is a uh, famous burial site, a colossal steppe pyramid yielded an approximate date of A.D. 1310. Discovered in 1971, more than 10 years before Russell Burroughs first entered his cave, the image of the front of the regalia, uh, the Birdman Stone, is 92 millimeters long, and 62 millimeters uh, in width. Uh, Ed, uh, it was presented to uh, Anthony with another son, uh, which his name was Ptolemy Philadelphus, and that's P-H-I-L-D-E-L-P-H-U-S. The other factor, uh, Jeff, is that there are over 200 to 300 cities in the United States which are named directly after the ancient Mediterranean cultures, and I'll show you that map later. At the time of their birth in 40 B.C., the twins were simply named Cleopatra and Alexander. When they were officially recognized by their father three years later as Anthony returned to Antioch, Turkey, which is in present Turkey, and Cleopatra joined him, they were named, as mentioned, Alexandra Helios, the sun, and Cleopatra Selene, the moon. Anthony's recognition of the children was marked by an eclipse, probably for this reason and to mythologize their twins' birth. The children were added uh, those celestial names. Although in Egypt, the moon was a male deity. In the sculpture, the genders were reversed according to the Greek tradition. And then this is referenced by uh, uh, Atlantis Rising Sun, the volume 40, The Lost Treasure of King Juba, written by Frank Joseph, and the second being a continuation, The Lost Treasure of King Juba, The Evidence of Africans in America, before Columbus. The story of a mysterious southern Illinois cave and its proof of the burying of Africans in North America long before Columbus. They include over 100 photographs of the artifacts discovered. I included about less than 20, but there are more uh, that are out there uh, circulating on the Internet. Uh, I have... I will get more for the audience. Uh, it recreates the historic voyage of King Juba and his Mauritanian sailors across the Atlantic to rebuild their society in the New World. And it explains the mystery of the Washita, a uh, tribal group of African origin first encountered by Lewis and Clark Expedition. Uh, 
So, um, basically, uh, this other article states what I've already covered. Um, there is another factor here. Okay. Excluding the lithic birdman and a half dozen or more similar sized sandstone tablets found near Cahokia and near Madison County's Horseshoe Lake, nine miles north of Monk's Mound. Precisely how many illustrated stones have been associated with Burroughs Cave? Estimates range from a few dozen to tens of thousands. It was in fact their frequency, uh, frequently uh, visual excellence that particularly attracted the recent attention of Joe Baker, the award-winning painter, illustrator, and teacher at the University of Southern Indiana, Evansville. Closely studied Burroughs Cave's imagery, which he easily recognized as a device Diverse work of not a few, but many different artists. It was clear then that most of the numeric, numerous depictions were not simply knocked out by untrained craftsmen, but could only have been carefully carved in the hand by skilled artists. Baker's research went beyond artistic considerations to the making of a startling deduction. Burroughs Cave never existed the way that we thought it was. Her Diligence personal investigations led back to an old agriculture estate in southern Illinois. It was here that she learned how uh, Lowry Farmstead family members as long ago as the late 19th century were perplexed by a large undetermined number of shallow pits pockmarking their um, their uh, their land. Inside the regularly, irregularly spaced depressions were found caches of mostly black stones inscribed with strange writing and emblazoned with the face of strange men wearing unfamiliar headgear. Generations of Lowry's regarded these, quote, Indian stones with superstitious dread and had little personally to do with them. Rumors nonetheless spread locally of these mysterious objects, which were eventually featured in a treasure hunting magazine uh, in the 1920s, according to... Uh, a man by the name of Kent Crinson, uh, an, an, an antiquarian and lecturer at an alternative archaeology conference held in Washington, Indiana, 34 miles, incidentally, from the suspected location of Burroughs Caves last November. Point being, Jeff, is that they, when they came up the Mississippi River, they obviously searched around for different areas, and then finally found the cave where they could be secluded and permanently settled in and protected. But they obviously uh, scoped out the land and uh, had lived in various areas uh, in that region. And, and Chris, do okay. lineage continue to live underground to this day? Do you know that? Say again, please. Does their lineage continue to live Repeat. underground to this day? We talking about the Mauritanian Empire? Yeah. Um, it's conceivable, but I think it's probably been faded out because uh, when they when they uh, Russell Burroughs obviously took pictures of the uh, uh, the what would be considered the royalty because there were there were uh, twelve or thirteen chambers inside that cave that were hermetically perfect, and they held. He showed that they were attacked by Indians and uh, the whole family was killed. But each one, he only opened one of them, which I'm surprised. I, since he realized how to open, they just pivot, that he would have actually looked into the other 12. But he only opened one of them by what he stated. 
but I do know that he went on and starting in somewhere around 1982, he started selling all these hundreds and hundreds of uh, gold artifacts. So they're in probably private collections today, but I'm sure he literally uh, cleared out that entire um, vault of the uh, uh, Mauritanian Empire uh, within that cave. I doubt he left anything because he didn't go. He didn't go public for 19 years. So he, I do know that he buried it, so it couldn't be uh, recovered. As far as uh, many people tried looking for it, and once he went to that, uh, was invited to attend that uh, conference in Vienna, Austria. Um, they all wanted it, and he was being hounded, so he decided to bury it. And he did try to um, to share the information, but then uh, he took a deposit, and then he uh, then he never followed through. So it does exist. Jesse apparently knows where it is, and uh, that it is real, and it has always existed, and it dates back nearly two thousand years. So, is it possible that they continued? Conceivably, yes, but more often, with uh, they basically vanished. There could be some bloodline, but it's hard to say. And there's no evidence that we know beyond what he had. And Russell Burroughs sold off all his works because they were gold and they were absolute relics. So he actually did uh, uh, society and, and civilization a disfavor rather than selling it to a museum where they could actually be studied and viewed by um, scholarly types as well as the public. Uh, he just wasn't, he made off with a, a small fortune in selling all these artifacts. But, so that is, you have to consider the fact that the mu- museums are swampy as well. Right. And, you know, they might not, you know, they don't want all I've been, to be revealed. Right. I've been to the Smithsonian Institute. I went there when I was 10. Uh, we went on a trip uh, uh, to Washington and Virginia uh, as my uncle was uh, um, he was a medical doctor and, and he was assigned to Vietnam. So uh, during the time we went and stayed with my mother, sister, aunt, and we traveled. We stayed there for a week. And that was at. Uh, let me see. Um one in Maryland. It was close by. Anyway, um, but I think it was Fort Meade. And so that's the best I can give you for an answer on that. But the point is, this is absolute verifiable proof that history has absolutely been rewritten and that it is deliberately being covered up by the evil military and evil government that we that we know today. But it's not limited to just our nation. It's all of them. So going forward forward um the the farm in question and its many pits all of them empty now still exist the story of its pits may provide an alternative explanation to the cave quote which uh russell burroughs declined to disclose since he began selling its artifacts in the early 1980s or as other investigators such as wayne may argue the lowry site might be an additional source of such objects which have as described above been discovered in other parts of southern Illinois. Before being shut down for lack of funding, May's 40-foot-tall tractor-trailer rig was positioned by crews 
above the suspected site and did in fact sink a drill bit into an almost perfectly square stone chamber. Unfortunately, what, whatever it may once have held had been flushed out years before by the rushing waters of the nearby Embarrass River. The disappointed researchers concluded that a gunpowder explosion set off too close to the site in late 1989 had ruptured an adjacent aquifer, flooding the chamber to its ceiling. <coughs> that this artificial subterranean rum had been identified as a possible location for Burroughs Cave served only to encourage May and his crew. Since Wayne May's drill found its mark, there have been other suggestions of less dramatic but no less revealing character. May has since obtained an unlikely subgroup of the Burroughs Cave collection comprised of small polished dark stone human figures occasionally nude but mostly dressed in what appear to be humble clothes. Carved with continuously contiguous imagery on either side, the objects seem to have served not ritual purposes but also as toys, uh, specifically dolls, each averaging four to five inches in length. There are between 50 to 70 of them, sometimes comically portrayed as grumpy-looking laundresses or washerwomen, hefting bags of clothes over the shoulders or engaging in similar arduous everyday chores. Three larger specimens are yellowish-brown sandstones carved in the round. The charming simplicity of these little models suggests authenticity to some. They also comprise the only known physical reference to children throughout the entire assemblage of Burroughs Cave materials. After all, the few university-trained scientists brave enough to risk the ear of uh, their colleagues by speaking out publicly on behalf of the ancient providence of these and related artifacts were convinced that the body of the, the site's material evidence belonged to the Roman-era refugees from North Africa, which must have been included uh, to their children. These people were James P. Schertz, S-C-H-E-R-Z, professor of civil engineering from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and a leading archaeoastronomer from Wake Forest University, professor of history in North Carolina. Uh, Dr. Warren Cook, professor of history and anthropology at Vermont's Castleton State College, and Dr. Joseph Mahan, M-A-H-A-N, professor of history at the University of Georgia, Columbus have all stated that a Neo-Mauritanian colony established itself nearly 2,000 years ago in downstate Illinois. Its southernmost frontier was set up against the violent incursions of Native American tribal peoples, perhaps uh, at least partially the ancestors of today's Shawnee Indians, and Shawnee is spelled S-H-A-W-N-E-E, -E, uh, in the form of stone battlements atop strategic bluffs forming a staggered line from the Mississippi River in the west across the state to the Ohio River in the east. Okay, I finished with that essay. I go on to the next one. Ready? Jeff? Ready when you are. Sorry, I was, Jeff? I was typing at the same time. I apologize. Yes, ready to go all about the oil. Correct. All right, for the audience... This is going to be a shock, but it's the truth. Oil as a fossil fuel is a fake science of natural resources. Uh, this was uh, brought to light by uh, Sean Young, who I'll get on the show uh, next month, or this month, rather, uh, the Bridge Life in the Mix info. He is Welch, not British. There's a big difference. Um, okay. 
this is uh there's much to be said in the media today about fake news with the Trump administration. The same is an expanding trend with poli- within politics. The idea of fakery is, is well and truly embedded in the minds of the populace. But are you ready to hear about something serious, uh, seriously corporate induced fake science? I'm ready. The following interview presents. Pardon? I said I'm ready. <laughs> okay. The following interview presents Act One in the script to force the globe under the taxation and control system that is man-made climate change. Act Two is CO2 as the cause. Colonel Fletcher Prouty, and that's P-R-O-U-T-Y, explains how. Oil was falsely classified as a fossil fuel in 1892 and how that deception was advanced further in the 1970s by Henry Kissinger and Nelson Rockefeller. Prouty explains that the Nixon, Kissinger, Rockefeller group cartel were seeking a world oil price. That effect created what many now call the petrodollar and the impact of that mistake is playing out still today across the planet. Both Iraq Saddam Hussein and Libya's Muammar Gaddafi were stopped. They were murdered when they attempted to sell oil in both the euros with uh, Saddam Hussein and the dinar with Muammar Gaddafi. Colonel Prouty spent nine years of his 23-year military career in the Pentagon, 1955 to 1964, two years with the Secretary of Defense, two years with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and five years with the headquarters U.S. Air Force. In 1955, he was appointed the first focal point officer between the CIA and the Air Force for clandestine operations per National Security Council Directive 5412. He was the briefing officer for, for the Secretary of Defense 1960-61 and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Points being, oil was first designated as a lubricant. Then everything changed when it was found to be, quote, a fuel because it became a value. Pricing the oil was a problem because as a natural resource, it was plentiful and in many cases it was not very deep beneath the ground. Rockefeller and his partners decided they must raise the price of oil and determined to create the impression oil was a scarce resource. If one stops for a minute, you can deduce the fact that scarcity is a foundation to post the Crusades, Europe and the West in general. Although I'm not sure that this was the case before the rise of the Knights Templar. In 1892, a convention meeting was held in Geneva, Switzerland by a group of scientists to determine what an organic substance actually is. The outcome was that an organic thing is made up of one hydrogen, two oxygen, three carbon, and four a living thing that is either dead or alive. Rockefeller, in his deviousness, sent over an entourage of scientists who persuaded the convention to accept oil as an organic substance. From this deception, the oil cartel could present oil as a scarce resource to inflate and control the price of oil. And this is the video that should be included at your end. The origin of oil falsely defined in 1892. And this is where I took it from. So basically, <laughs> we've been lied to death. 
and that oil, if you recall, Jeff, that uh, Sinclair oil used to show a dinosaur, okay, uh, that the oil and then uh, some of the other ones, uh, Mobile or Exxon, then would like do animated cartoons where it takes a dinosaur, then uh, it uh, animated, it goes down into the ground, and then it goes and gets pumped into your gas tank. I remember this. All this that's, is just, that's what I was taught as a kid. Well, we were taught very erroneously. Okay. Yes, we were. So, uh, that covers that. And what I can do now is I've still got half an hour. I can go into the third, which I also sent to you, which is the lost Egyptian city of the Grand Canyon, discovered in 1909. And by the way, okay. listening, I also posted that one. So that is in the history section. And it's a word file, so it'll really stand out, but it is titled appropriately as well. So if you want to jump into that, if you are one of the subscribers on Right On You, all the pictures and the Intel brief is there for you to follow along. Okay. All right. This is very important because basically we have been buffaloed to death about the truth and that ancient civilizations made it to this the new world in both North and South America thousands of years before what we've been taught. And Columbus was the last, and he wasn't finding a shortcut route to India. He knew exactly where he was going because he had ancient maps that already identified the continents. All right. So the lost city, the lost Egyptian city of the Grand Canyon was discovered in 1909. And then there are also pictures which show the article in 1909 and the Egyptian writing. Ever since an intriguing article re reporting of the discovery of the great underground uh, synagogue of the Grand Canyon appeared in the Arizona Gazette in 1909, scientists have debated whether this story is true or a hoax. Several alternative history authors and researchers, among them David Hatcher Childress, he's also on television, believe the discovery did occur, and this is yet another archaeological cover-up. To begin with, we will look at the article Explorations in the Grand Canyon as was originally published as a front cover story on April 5, 1909 in the Arizona Gazette. The newspaper wrote as follows, the latest news of the progress of the explorations of what is now regarded by scientists as not only the oldest archaeological discovery in the United States, but one of the most valuable in the world, which was mentioned some time ago in the Gazette, was brought to the city yesterday by uh, Mr. Uh, Professor, rather, G.E. Kincaid, the explorer who found the great underground citadel of the Grand Canyon during a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down the Colorado in a wooden boat to Yuma several months ago. According to the story related to the Gazette, uh, Kincaid, the archaeologist of the Smithsonian Institute, which is financing the expeditions, have made discoveries which almost conclusively prove that the race which inhabited this mysterious cavern, hewn into solid rock by human hands, was of Oriental, possibly from Egypt, tracing back to Ramses. If their theories come from the translation of the tablets engraved with hieroglyphics, the mystery of the prehistoric peoples of North America, their ancient arts, who they were and whence they came, will be solved. Egypt and the Nile and Arizona and the Colorado will be linked by historical change running back to ages which staggers the wildest fancy of, of fictionists. A thorough examination 
Under the direction of Professor S.A. Jordan, the Smithsonian Institute is now prosecuting the most thorough explorations, which will be contained until the last link in the chain is forged. Nearly a mile underground, about 480 feet below the surface, the long main passage has been delved into to find another mammoth chamber from which radiates the scores of passageways, like the spokes of a wheel. Several hundred rooms have been discovered, reached by passageways running from the main passage, one of them having been explored for 854 feet and another for 634. It's important to understand that this passageway in the Grand Canyon, this, this city, cavern, is shaped like the rays of a sun. And so you have the primary entrance and then off of it are radial arms that uh, go into other passages, all like a, a rising sun. Okay. Do you know how many, Chris, um, how many rays there are? Just out of curiosity. I believe there's about 25, but I can count them. I have a, I will send very quickly. I will send just strictly photos for your audience and they will show everything that was, uh, uh, found, including the diagram of which shows the, how large it, they projected that it could hold 50, a minimum 30, possibly 50,000 people. And that's quite a few. And it still exists today and it is guarded by the military. Okay. Uh, it's one of, many in, in the Grand Canyon. Um, so, uh, going forward, uh, the recent finds include articles which have never been known as native to this country, and doubtless that they had origin in the Orient. War weapons, copper instruments, sharp edges, and hard as steel indicate the high state of civilization reached by these strange people. So interested have the scientists become that preparations are being made to equip the camp for extensive studies, and the force will be increased to 30 to 40 people. Mr. Kincaid's report. Mr. Kincaid was the first white child born in Idaho and has been an explorer and hunter all his life, 30 years having been in the service of the Smithsonian Institute. Even briefly recounted, his history sounds fabulous, almost grotesque. Quote, first I would impress that the cavern is nearly inaccessible. The entrance is 486 feet down from the Shira Canyon Wall, from the rim of the canyon. It is located on government land and no visitor will be allowed there under penalty of trespass. The scientists wish to look, uh, work unmolested without fear of archaeological discoveries being disturbed by curio or relic hunters. A trip there would be fruitless and the visitors, visitors would be sent on their way. The story of how I found the cavern has been related, but in a paragraph. I was journeying down the Colorado River in a boat alone looking for mineral. Some 42 miles up the river, from the El Tovar, and that's T-O-V-A-R, Crystal Canyon, I saw on the east wall stains in the sedimentary formed about 2,000 feet above the riverbed. There was no trail to this point, but I finally reached it with great difficulty. He climbed up there. The tomb of the crypt in which the mummies were found is one of the largest of the chambers, the wall slanting back at an angle of about 35 degrees. He came in, when he went in, they have the burial chamber is one of the center rooms in the beginning. Uh, over a hundred feet from the entrance is a cross hall, several hundred feet long, in which there are found idol or image of the people's god sitting cross-legged with a lotus flower or lily in each hand. The cast of the face is oriental and the carving of this cavern. The idol almost resembles Buddha, though the scientists are not certain as to what religious worship it represents. Taking into consideration everything found thus far, it is possible that this worship 
most resembles the ancient people of Tibet. Surrounding this idol are smaller images, some very beautiful in form, others crook-necked and distorted shapes, symbolic probably of good and evil. There are two large cactus with protruding arms, one on each side of the dais, and that's D-A-I-S, on which the god squats. All this is carved out of hard rock resembling marble. In the opposite corner of this cross hall were found tools of all descriptions made of copper. These people undoubtedly knew the lost art of hardening this metal, which had been sought by chemists and chemicals for centuries without result. On a bench running across the workroom was some charcoal and other material probably used in the process. There was also slag, which is crushed rock debris, and stuff similar to mate, M-A-T-T-E, showing that these ancient, uh, these ancient peoples smelted ores, the metals, but so far no trace of where or how this was done has been discovered, nor the origin of the ore. Among the other finds are vases or urns and cups of copper and gold, uh, made very artistic in design. The pottery work includes enameled ware and glazed vessels. Another passageway leads to granaries such are found in the Oriental temples. They contain seeds of various kinds. One very large storehouse inside has not yet been entered, as it is 12 feet high and can be reached only from above. Two copper hooks extend on the edge, which indicates that some sort of ladder was attached. These granaries are rounded as the material of which they are constructed. I think it is a very hard cement. A gray metal is also found in this cavern, which puzzles scientists for its identity has not been established. It resembles platinum. Uh, I, uh, that was not yet been established, uh, but it is very similar to platinum. Strewn promiscuously over the floor, everywhere are what people call, quote, cat's eyes. That's a yellow stone of no great value. Each one is engraved with the head of a Malay type, and that's M-A-L-A-Y. And there's a picture of uh, what uh, the mummies look like. These children's examined so far have proven to be male, no children or female. The engraving of the tables uh, probably has something to do with the religious religion of the people. Similar hieroglyphics have been found in southern Arizona. Among the pictorial writings, only two animals are found. One is of a prehistoric type. The tomb or crypt in which the mummies were found is one of the largest of the chambers. The wall slanted back at an angle of 35 degrees. Of these tiers of mummies, each one is occupying a separate huge shelf. And there's roughly in that, Jeff, a ballpark of 30 to 40 that are obviously prior uh, um, religious and uh, senior leaders of, of, these, uh, of this organization, of this uh, civilization. Um, the urns or cups on the lower tiers are crude, while on the higher shelves are reached, the urns are finer in design, showing a later stage of civilization. It is worth, worthy of note that all the mummies examined so far have male, no children or females buried here. This leads to the belief that this exterior section was the warrior's barracks. Among the discoveries, no bones of animals have been found. No skin, no clothing, no bedding. Many of the rooms are bare, uh, but for water vessels. One room, about 40 by 700 feet, it's a large room, it was probably the main dining hall for cooking utensils are found here. What these people lived on is a problem, though it is presumed that they came 
south in the winter and farmed in the valleys going back north in the summer. Upwards of 50,000 people could have lived in this cavern comfortably. One theory is that the present Indian tribes found in Arizona are descendants of the serfs or slaves of these people, which inhabited the caves. Undoubtedly a good many thousand of years before the Christian era. A people lived here which reached a high stage of civilization. The chronology of human history is full of gaps. Professor Jordan is much more enthused over the discoveries and believes that the find will prove incalculable value in archaeological work. One thing I have not spoken of may be of interest. There is one chamber of the passageway to which is not ventilated, and when we approached it, a deadly snaking smell struck us. Our light would not penetrate the gloom, and until stronger ones are available, we will not know what the chamber contains. Some say snakes, but others uh, dismiss this idea and think it may contain a deadly gas or chemicals used by the ancients. No sounds are heard, but it smells snaky just the same. The whole underground insulation gives one of the shakiest nerves uh, or the creeps. The gloom is like a weight on one's shoulder. Our flashlights and candles can only make the darkness blacker. Imagine, imagination can reveal in conjectures and ungodly dreams back through the ages that have elapsed until the mind's real in the dizziness in space. An Indian legend. In connection with the story, it is notable that among the Hopi Indians, the tradition is told that their ancestors once lived in an underground world in the Grand Canyon. Till dissension arose between the good and the bad, the people of one heart and the people of two hearts. And that's referencing between what is we think of today in higher terms is that service to others, which is positive, and service to self, which is negative. Uh, Machetto, and that's M-A-C-H-E-T-T-O, who was their chief, counseled them to leave the underworld, but there was no way out. The chief then caused a tree to grow up and pierce the roof of the underworld, and then the people of one heart climbed out. They tarried by the Red River, which is uh, pronounced as Pasivi, which is P-A-I-S-I-S-V-A-I, Red River, which is the Colorado River today, and grew grain and corn. They sent out a message to the Temple of the Sun, asking the blessing of peace, goodwill, and reign for the people of one heart. The messenger never returned, but today at the Hopi villages at sundown can be seen the old men of the tribe out on the house steps, uh, gazing toward the sun, looking for the messenger. When he returns, their lands and ancient dwelling place will be restored to them. That is the tradition. Among the engravings of animals in the cave is seen the images of a heart over the spot where it is located. The legend was learned by W.E. Rollins, R-O-L-L-I-N-S, the artist during a year spent with the Hopi Indians. There are two categories uh, and two theories of the origins of the Egyptians. One is that they came from Asia. Another, that the racial cradle was in the Upper Nile region. Hereon, an Egyptologist believed in the Indian origins of the, of the Egyptians. The discoveries in the Grand Canyon may throw further light on human evolution and prehistoric ages. This is what we learned from the article published in the Arizona Gazette. Ever since the article appeared, there has been a lot of speculation whether the underground city really exists. That is, David Hatcher Childress examined the story and said, perhaps one of the most amazing suppression of all is the excavation of an Egyptian tomb by the Smithsonian Institute in Arizona. A lengthy front page story of the Phoenix Gazette on April 5th, 1909, gave a highly detailed report of the discovery and excavation of a rock-cut vault 
by an expedition led by Professor S.A. Jordan of the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian Institute, however, claimed to have absolutely no knowledge of the discovery or its discoverers. Typical. The World Explorers Club decided to check out the story by calling the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., though we felt there was little chance of getting any real information. After speaking briefly to an operator, we were transferred to a Smithsonian staff archaeologist, and a woman's voice came on the phone and identified herself. I told her that I was investigating a story from the 1909 Phoenix newspaper article about the Smithsonian Institute having excavated a rock-cut vaults in the Grand Canyon where Egyptian artifacts had been discovered, and whether the Smithsonian Institute could give me any more information on the subject. She said, the first thing I can tell you before we go further is that no Egyptian artifacts of any kind have ever been found in North or South America. Therefore, I can tell you that the Smithsonian Institute has never been involved in any such excavations, which is absolutely falsehood. She was quite helpful and polite, but in the end, I knew nothing. Neither she or anyone else with whom I spoke could find any uh, record of the discovery of either G.E. Kincaid and Professor S.A. Jordan. While it cannot be discounted that the entire story is an elaborate newspaper hoax, the fact is that it was on the front page, named the prestigious Smithsonian Institute, and gave a highly detailed story that went on for several pages, lends a great deal of it to its credibility. It is hard to believe such a story could have come out of thin air. If this story is true, it would radically change the current view that there was no transatlantic contact in pre-Columbian times, and that all American tribes of Indians on both continents are descendants from Ice Age explorers who came only across the Bering Strait. Is the idea that ancient Egyptians came to the Arizona area in the ancient past so objectionable and preposterous that it must be covered up? Perhaps the Smithsonian Institution uh, is more interested in maintaining the status quo than rocking the boat with astonishing new discoveries that overturn previously accepted academic teachings. Historian and linguist Carl Hart, H-A-R-T, editor of World Explorer, uh, then obtained a hiker's map of the Grand Canyon from a bookstore in Chicago. Poring over the map, we were amazed to see that much of the area of the north side of the canyon has Egyptian names. The area around the 94-mile creek and Trinity Creek had areas, rock formations, with names like Tower of Set, S-E-T, Tower of Ra, R-A, the Horus, H-O-R-U-S, Temple, the Osiris, O-S-I-R-I-S, Temple, and the Isis, I-S-I-S, Temple. Today we still wonder if the lost underground city of the Grand Canyon will ever be found. Will we all one day finally be told the true story about this lost subterranean city that was once home to a lost ancient civilization, or will the whole story forever remain an archaeological cover-up? That's the end of that story. So... Now we have how much time left? Enough for questions? Let's see. We've got 15 minutes. I'll let you take over, Jeff. All right. Well, listen, I can turn on if, it, if we want to take one or two quick calls. That would be fine. Uh, but, Chris, yeah, the Grand Canyon, man, I want to go back now and uh, and re-explore. It just, uh, it's amazing to me the amount of information you've brought out about it. And, uh yeah, it, listen, and some people just uh, just came in. Uh, the the replay will be available almost immediately after uh, we finish here, and uh, you'll be able to get the full replay. The re posts of these all stay up, 
So, you know, you can go back and archive them and things like that as well. So uh, we do have time for one or two questions. And if there isn't, we'll just uh, end it a little bit early. Oh, we do have Debbie in Italy is going to come into the room. And Debbie, I hope your voice is okay to speak. Your voice is okay to speak. Yes, it is. It's just a little sinus deal going on. Chris, I have a question about the oil and the gas that's now nagging me. I was fortunate enough to live in San Diego where the Natural Museum, the Christian Museum, originally was 30 years ago before it moved. And um, we learned at that time that the gas and the uh, oil deposits on the earth were created from the flood compressing, you know, all the natural life, the organic life. And that's kind of what I, I taught these kids, and that's what I believed. And I wanted to know if that is what you're referring to, and that happens ongoing, you know, as the earth replenishes itself, that it's not a one and done. Can you talk about that? Yes, my brother is an environmental scientist in New England, and I was pointing out to him that um, that oil is not a byproduct of dinosaurs, which have been erroneously uh, meant. And he confirmed what I suspected, that it's a compression of algae and plankton over thousands of years, untold thousands, and basically it's a natural byproduct. However, uh, that oil has always been as from the article uh, that was determined that it's always been available and it, it was the Rockefeller and uh, uh, Kissinger found it, you know, together that they basically turned it into a profit making uh, into a natural resource. It is not a natural resource. It's a natural byproduct, but that was uh, done in 1892. So, um, in my opinion, I believe that it is, quote, renewable in the sense from just over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. But um, it's been at close to the surface, but all the oil near the surface has obviously been drained off. There is still massive reserves of oil. Our country has one of the largest, but they've never tapped into it because it's all about trading and using uh, uh, Saudi and uh, Soviet Union is the, has the largest amount of oil. But we've been working with a, a debt-based economy, and we have the technology. I've seen technology that's anywhere, oh, easily 20,000 years in advance with top secret level and above. But the point is, um, we yes, in, in a sense, I believe it's renewable, but not, at, not in a short-term uh, perspective. It is in a long-term. But the point... Uh, miss is that we need to get off of uh, carbon-based, uh, you know, not what I could. Oil, oil is basically, we have. Oil should have never been a fuel. We shouldn't have been that's gasoline cool. at all. Listen, hydrogen is the answer to this. But And by the way, oil is useful as a lubricant, which is what it's meant for. And the reserves in the earth are endless if we used it as a lubricant in particular. Correct. But 
we've had um, oil is strictly a expendable or explosive technology. And so we have to basically have an infinite amount of it. Uh, you're, it's designed for, you know, uh, cars for both uh, gasoline and diesel. Uh, so we can go 200 to 300 miles on a tank. You have to combust it for power and then it pollutes. It's absolutely, utterly inefficient, but it was all designed for profit. And where we've had from the creator, which is known as uh, implosive or renewable energy, and that is what we should have been thousands of years ago. But this, but this debt-based society this was brought has been to you by the same people who uh, got rid of free electricity and wanted to run hydro lines so they could charge. You know, listen, it's all about it's all about keeping the slave class, and you're so right to bring it right back to the economy, Chris, because that's what is driving it—just greed and power. But I just wanted the the the, the woman to know that uh, we have better resources and better alternatives to be able to uh, take care of humanity. We have uh, re- many types of renewable, but they're not being promoted. I lived in California for 23.5 years and worked with the military there as well as uh seeing what when they were promoting renewable energy and uh they have uh wind basically they were going with uh wind power there's an entire junkyard of these because they're they're only good for 20 years they're massively heavy and they're expensive and they are are not even cost effective to maintain but with, there are other methods of of wind power so we have it. I've got quite a few because uh, I've got several thousand essays, and um, I I can bring that up on a, a future show to talk about the alternative energies that we possess that our governments and military are not sharing and are not encouraging. Uh, I hope this is close enough for an answer for you, Miss. Yeah, and by the way, Chris, for future essays, uh, there's a lot of people asking about Tartaria, so. Uh, I would put that I have on that. the uh, on their request list. All right, we can do. Th- All right, we'll make since I told you David's on vacation uh, for uh, two shows that he's that I will be doing with you solely. We'll make Tartaria the next one then. Okay. All right, sounds great. Hey, listen, everybody, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for the likes. Thank you for the shares. Thank you for the coffees and for sending the roses and, and all that stuff. It, look, it really does make a difference. And, uh, you know, when you do little things like that, what's happening is it increases the algorithm for what we do. And then even our other shows get more exposure, believe it or not. So when we bring it out Intel, and by the way, some of the Intel we're bringing out is saving lives, literally, uh, because of course this is a faith-based broadcast and, uh, and people are coming to Christ and getting saved, you know, almost every week with, with us and through us. So, you know, it's important and we really appreciate your support and everything you do. And, uh, yeah, listen. So just remember, love your God, love your family, love your neighbor and make a difference in your community. And I will have some answers for the other women that asked the previous week. I'll make that in the introduction all right thanks sir thank you so much all right over and out